Thank you for joining us for the Lessons from First Naz podcast. We're taking a, a fresh look at Jesus, or trying to these days, through the eyes of one of his closest friends, a man named John. He, John was one of four authors who took, uh, took a whack at, at writing the story of Jesus' life and ministry. There were others who tried as well, but down through the ages, the, uh, the, the Christian church has looked at these four testimonies about the life of Jesus and said, it's these four that consistently tell the tale of who Jesus is, of what he came to accomplish, and what he did, in fact, accomplish while he was here on earth. John, however, the fourth of those, of those guys who, who tried to write a story of the life of Jesus, he didn't see Jesus through the same set of lenses that the other three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, seem to. And it's, it's this personal look that emerges from John's very close friendship with Jesus that we're drawn to as we look into his book. Last week, I, I kicked off... <coughs> pardon me. Sorry, try not to do that to you too many times <coughs> today. No promises. Last week, I kicked off our study uh, of John's gospel by trying to acquaint you with three important characters from John's book. The first is this enigmatic fireball personality of a guy named John, who we call John the Baptist. He was this celebrity prophet whose mission was to announce that God had sent someone into the world to deal forever with the brokenness of the human condition that produces sin in our words and our thoughts and our actions toward one another. It's a pretty important role that John the Baptist played. The importance of that mission gives importance to the role. If you were here last week, you'll remember John the Baptist started out saying, you people have got to deal with your sin. But when he finally realized who Jesus was, he changed his message to God has decided that he will come and deal with your sin. It was a fundamental change in his ministry. It also seemed to spell the end of it. Because John had a group of disciples, that is, student followers who were trying to learn John's ideas and also become like him in their character and behavior and actions. And just as John got to the peak of his ministry and and changed that announcement, his, his big mission from you deal with your sin to God has provided somebody who's going to do that for you, John's disciples started looking back and forth between him, John the Baptist, and this new guy, and wondering, is, is the tide turning? Should we now move and go with the guy who's going to be successful? John said, yeah, you should, because he's the Lamb of God who came to take away the sin of the entire world. It's not about who's popular this week. He's the one that God sent. God had sent this, this sin fixer on a grand scale into the world, John said, and told his closest followers to leave him behind and follow Jesus. Jesus is the third character, and John the Baptist didn't introduce Jesus as the, the, the new most popular teacher, but as that Lamb of God, as the perfect expression of God's heart in the world. You want to know what God the Father's like, the invisible God that you've never seen and everybody's told you you should believe in your whole life? Look at Jesus. See how he treated people. You'll come to understand God. John the Baptist went on to say that he's actually God come into this world. And John, the author of the book, a different John, seconded the motion. He taught us that not only is he God, he was the one who created the world. So while the other gospel writers, two of them, start with the story of the cute little baby in the manger born under miraculous circumstances, John says, oh no, he's been around way longer than that. 
He's the creator God. And he's the one who gives light and life to people. Have you seen that light in your own heart? Something that seems like greater than the animals? I mean, we all love our dogs and the hamsters. All the hamsters. They're so cute, right? But there's something in us that makes us fundamentally different than the animals. This, this light that just keeps, seems to keep flickering in our hearts and our minds. And, and when we get a glimpse of God, we can see it in him. And, and as we read about Jesus, we, we see it in him. John said, yeah, he's, he's the one who brought that light into the world. And if you'll accept it, it'll become life in you. And your life will then get connected with the very life of God. You become his life lights in this world. That was last week's sermon. Looks like I preached it twice now. Hmm. Sorry about that. But at the outside of my preaching time today, um, I have to, to speak a retraction of sorts from last week's message. Because I ended the message last week by saying that, uh, that today we were going to revisit John the Baptist and that John the Baptist was coming to us with a message that in typical prophet-like fashion said, believe in Jesus or else. You remember, kids, when your mom and dad would say, or else? In your smart aleck little minds, you were saying, or else What? as you ran and did whatever it is that they told you to do. Because you knew by the time they pulled out the or else they were ready to deliver, right? John the Baptist came with a message. That's what I told you last week, but I'm going to print a retraction today, speak one, because I think I was wrong. Stand with me, please, if you would, as we read the scriptures. The reason that I ask you to stand is because we want to demonstrate respect for the blessing of spiritual instruction that has been afforded to the Christian church today by the writing and the preservation of the scriptures. It's something that no group of human beings could ever agree upon and really pull off down through time. So we realize that this book, this collection of books, it has God's fingerprints on it. He has given it to us. So we read, after this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now, John, the Baptist, also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. And then Captain Obvious writes, this was before John was put in prison. (laughs) John didn't get out of prison, okay? So by definition, it had to be. Anyway, sorry, John. Uh, An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he's baptizing and everybody's going to him. And to this, John replied, a person can only receive what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah, but am sent ahead of him. The bridegroom, or the bride, belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine, and it's now complete. He must become greater. 
I must become less. This is the word of God for the people of God. You may be seated. (laughs) We're not done reading the scriptures yet, but I'm going to talk a little bit in here. Um, You and I are going to read one more paragraph of John's gospel together this morning, but I have to stop at this point to tell you that as we do, you and I are going to make some assumptions The ancient texts that have become our Bible's New Testament, which have been translated into English, were originally written in Greek and Aramaic. So not only were they written in languages foreign to us, but they were also written in a rather peculiar manner, Um, almost all capital letters and with no punctuation. Makes those texts kind of hard to read. When the texts were translated then, scholars had to read them and reread them and reread each passage until they were able to kind of sort of firmly figure out where ideas began and where they ended. And, and when they thought that they had figured that out, they then inserted the punctuation marks that you and I are familiar with, or at least that our teachers hoped we would get familiar with, capitalizing the first word in each sentence, putting a period or a question mark or, or an exclamation point at the end of the sentence sentence, and then backing off and kind of reading it to ourselves and seeing, is there a place in there where a person ought to pause and place a comma? If all of that punctuation stuff doesn't seem to matter to you and you wonder why your Bible nerd pastor is making you listen to all the stuff that they forced him to learn in seminary, um, consider these two sentences and tell me how important punctuation is in determining meaning. Let's eat Grandma. Let's eat, Grandma. Hmm. It's merely for illustrative purposes, okay? Now, considering the importance of one little diagonal mark on that screen in determining meaning, I'd like for us to take a look at the next paragraph of John's Gospel. Some translation scholars decided that this paragraph was John the Baptist, fiery prophet, continuing to speak, kind of crescendoing to the the end of the message where he would give it the final mmm and drive it home. And other translation committees said that, no, John the Baptist finished where we did, saying, he must grow greater, I must become less. And instead, they, uh, they assumed that this next paragraph we're going to read was written by an elderly man whose name also was John, a friend, a close friend of Jesus. And you can tell which of those things each translation committee chose by looking at where they put the quotation marks. In the New International Version that we've been reading from today, the translators decided that John the Baptist was done and that this this elderly friend of Jesus offered this commentary about him. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Hmm. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful, for the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God. 
For God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. And whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him. I often preach from the New Living Translation of the Bible. And its scholars decided the opposite, that it was John the Baptist continuing his prophetic tour de force, which then would render this paragraph reading something like this. After John has said, he must become greater, I must become less, he continues, he's come from above and is greater than anyone else. We're of the earth, and we speak of earthly things, but he's come from heaven and is greater than anyone else. He testifies about what he has seen and heard, but how few believe what he tells them. Anyone who accepts his testimony can affirm that God is true, for he is sent by God, he speaks God's words, for God gives him the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has put everything into his hands, and anyone who believes in God's Son has eternal life. But anyone who doesn't obey the Son will never experience eternal life, but remains under God's angry judgment. Where John the Baptist drops the mic and walks off the stage. I have an opinion based on my studies, but... I have to tell you that it's just that. It's the conclusion I arrived at. It's thus saith the cliff, not thus saith the Lord, so it holds a lot less weight. But let's forget for a moment, if we can, this question of who said it, and let's look instead at the content and see what we can learn from it. Whoever it was, John the Baptist, (coughs) or John the Apostle, whoever it was, He was trying to help us understand a few more important things about Jesus before we go any further in this book. So let's take a look at him. Whoever it was, they were trying to teach us, first of all, that Jesus was sent by God. You can see that in verse 34 of John chapter 3, from which we are reading. In other words, there was something that God wanted to see happen in this world. There was something that God had to see happen in this broken world of ours, and it was worth absolutely everything to him. It had to happen at all costs, so rather than just counting on the human race plus time to suddenly turn into the perfect solution to the problem, God instead, God instead sent his own son, Jesus, to make it happen in this world in time to save a bunch of people from themselves. This mission, saving the world, had previously been mission impossible for all of time prior to the point that Jesus came into the world. But it had to become mission accomplished in the heart of God, so he sent Jesus to get after it and make it happen. You should give thanks for that. It's the best news you've ever heard in your life. John, the author, John the Baptist, we don't know who was teaching at the end of the book, and the end of the chapter. But we know that he wanted us to, to get this one thing, that God sent Jesus into this world. 
He also wanted us to know that that Jesus spoke God's words. That's also in chapter 3, verse 34. Over the next few weeks, as we continue to study the book, John is going to introduce us to several of Jesus' teachings. And whether you take them at face value or you dig deep, (coughs) looking for foundational principles of truth well beneath the surface, however it is that you approach the texts of the teachings of Jesus, you will find that Jesus' teachings were radical. And you can take that in the politically subversive way that people say radical or in the rad dude way. But either way or both, Jesus' teachings are radical. They challenged people then and now from antiquity to this day to think differently about what is right and what is holy and what is good. The teachings of Jesus confront us with our own selfishness and our pride. But if Jesus is just another ancient teacher, then you and I can kind of look at these teachings and decide for ourselves which part of them we'll accept and which part of them we'll relegate to, well, that was just Jesus' opinion. We can decide whether we think it's right for us and then decide whether or not to believe and make these teachings of Jesus a part of our lives. That's if Jesus was only an ancient teacher. But if Jesus spoke God's words, feel the way to that. If Jesus spoke God the Father's words, then those of us who are his followers must submit to his teachings. Hey, Americans, I'm one. Hey, Americans, that word submit doesn't fit us very well, does it? You guys ever shop at like, um, oh, like, like Ross or any of the kind of uh, it's not a second-hand store, but it's a second-quality store. Come on, if you could admit, you know, the things I've asked you to earlier, can you, or cheapskates like me? Come on, cheapskates, be real about it, okay? All right, so uh, that's the only place that I'll shop because I'm a cheapskate. And so um, occasionally I'll go in there and I'll get this shirt, and it looks great. And I'll take it home, and I realize, well, they sewed the, the, the sleeve on kind of crooked, you know, so it's constantly doing this on me. And I'll just do this, keep wearing it. It doesn't quite fit right, you know, but it, you know. You see, the teachings of Jesus don't always fit us well. They sometimes bind a little bit through the shoulders and billow a little bit in other places. But if these are the words of God, then we must wear them. And the word submit, as awkward as, as it is and feels, has to become the approach of God's people to the teachings of Jesus. If these are the words of God. Amen? We must change our minds where we disagree with Jesus. We must confront our own sin where Jesus' teachings do instead of justifying why it was okay for me this time. And when we do, those words that Jesus spoke, when we do submit to them, those words that Jesus spoke can begin to transform our hearts and our lives. We'll 
believe differently and live differently than we do right now when we come to accept the things that Jesus taught as the very words of God. But that transformation, I've got to tell you, can only happen if we accept his teachings as the word of God and the word of God to us. What is it that you're struggling with that plagues your conscience? Hoping that you'll be changed, having prayed about it for for weeks, months, years, some of us decades. What is the part of your life that seems to not budge? Brings you shame. Submitting to the teachings of Christ. Submitting first to this notion that he speaks the words of God to us is the first thing that, that, will, that will apply the kind of leverage that it takes to see that boulder move in your life. It's humbling yourself before his teachings. John the Baptist Or John, the old guy, who the friend of Jesus as a young man, but lived to be an old guy. We don't know who it was who was teaching us in this last paragraph of of the chapter, but he wanted us to know that, that... Jesus was sent into this world to take care of a certain mission by God himself and and that when he spoke, he spoke God's words. God's words. He also wanted us to know that God gave Jesus the Holy Spirit without limit. And this idea is a little slippery, but but let's try to get a, a good grasp on it. When we Christians say that we believe in God, we're talking about this concept called the Trinity. This is the part where you fasten your seatbelts, okay? It comes from two words, tri meaning three, and unity meaning one. It's the, it's the word that means three and one together. We believe, Christians do, in one God who's expressed in three persons. Make sense? Nod your heads like this, because it doesn't to anybody, okay? I mean, kind of, sort of. We'll get close to it and go, oh, I think I, What? Is it three or is it one? We, um, when we Christians say we believe in God, we're, we're saying that we believe in one God who is expressed in three persons. Listen, there's enough of me that I barely make one person. You know what I mean? I can't fill out a good, strong personality or character very well on my own. There's not a lot of cliff here. But there's a fullness to the being of God that expresses himself as Three well-rounded persons. God the Father, God the Son, and Holy Spirit. All are God in their very essence, but each one of them functions very differently toward us. What we'll see as we progress through John's book is that John is presenting a very compelling case that Jesus actually is the God. Jesus was also human, however, which necessarily brings with it some limitations. So imagine working that out from day to day as Jesus. Fully God, but human with limitations. How do I get all of the godhood to to become horsepower that hits the ground to help people when I've got these human limitations? The God who had been omnipresent everywhere at all times at once becomes a human being that a GPS can locate right there and not over there. Fully God, Jesus. So how if he accepts the limitations of 
humanity, how in the world can he get the God-sized mission of saving the world done? A little tricky. It meant that facing the whole Lamb of God project with those human limitations was going to be exceedingly difficult. But God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, were so invested in the project of rescuing us from ourselves that God the Father who sent Jesus into the world sent the Spirit to go with him. That's what the whole baptism of Jesus event was about when God said, hey, John, you want to know who the Savior of the world is? Look for the guy who gets the Holy Spirit. That's going to be your biggest clue. And so here came Jesus along with the masses and the heavens split open and the Holy Spirit of God descended out of heaven in visible form, lit on Jesus like a bird lights on its perch. And John says, oh, I remember the lesson. That's the guy. So when Jesus left that scene to go and do the business of saving the world, when he left that scene to go and do the teaching, when he left that scene to go and pray on a hillside by himself with the Father, when he left that scene to go turn water into wine and to face temptation and to heal people and to raise the dead, he did it by the power of God's Holy Spirit who more than makes up for human limitations. How many people today can testify that the Holy Spirit of God more than makes up for human weakness, frailty, and brokenness? How many of you have said something that you didn't know until you said it? When your friend needed advice and you spoke wisdom that you didn't know until that second, it's the Holy Spirit of God. How many of you have found strength when you didn't think you could put one foot in front of the other? You're just done, but you found the way somehow. When you knew your inner resources were tapped. The scriptures promise strength to those who wait on the Lord. And his Holy Spirit is the one who delivers that. How many of you have been so heartbroken? You didn't think you could face the day. You found yourself swinging your legs out of your bed and sitting up and saying, Lord, help me. And the next thing you knew, your teeth were brushed and your, and your clothes were on and you're on your way to work. The Holy Spirit of God works with human limitations and weakness. And when Jesus, the God, accepted human limitations, God the Father said, it's probably going to take more than that. And he sent his Holy Spirit into this world and upon Jesus. Part of accomplishing the job for Jesus was to accept the Holy Spirit to come and do it with him. And part of accomplishing your job of living for Christ in this world will require that you too look for court and receive God's Holy Spirit when he comes to you. When John saw (laughs) the Spirit come upon Jesus, it wasn't just a sign. It was a strategy. It was the way that God was going to get the mission done in this world. It 
And so it takes the teachings of Jesus and, and it transforms them from mere moral lessons into this thing that fuels the human person and changes us at the level of our hearts and changes our minds so that we can agree with him and eventually changes our actions so that we live like Jesus and for Jesus to the people that he loved. So, God gave Jesus the spirit without limit. Man, I wish John would have really delivered the goods here. I wish at this point he would have said, and the Holy Spirit is available to all of you. But it's a different book, so I don't get to go there this morning. Asterisk footnote, it's in there. Okay. We don't know whether it was John, the old man, friend of Jesus, or John the Baptist who was teaching these things. Whoever it was, um, inspired by God, the Holy Spirit, said there's some things you've got to know about Jesus. He was sent into this world to make mission impossible, mission accomplished. When he spoke, he spoke God's words. They hold authority over those who dare to call themselves the followers of Jesus. Jesus went into the world to do the incredible mission with the limits of human weakness, but accepted the very power of God's Holy Spirit. We needed to know those things. And John, or John, also taught us this one thing that's really, really difficult. We either believe in Jesus, or we will receive the consequences of refusing to do so. Jesus is a watershed point in ancient human history, and in your life at some point. God himself has determined that you believe in Jesus and get the benefits of that. Or you refuse to, and you get the consequences of that. In verse 31, it's written that Jesus came from heaven and is above all. So if we're just working with definitions, who is it that would come from heaven and be above all? God. Right? Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay, here he says, Jesus came from heaven and is above all. He's claiming that Jesus is God. It's a clear statement that whoever was writing or speaking this paragraph believed that Jesus was God, from heaven, above all. And the implication of Jesus' divinity or godhood is that if we defy him, if we reject him, if we oppose him, or if we just flat ignore him in this life, if we do anything other than place our faith in him and align ourselves in relationship with him, he will give us exactly what we want. We either align ourselves with him, or he says, oh, you don't want to? I'll give you that. It's just that when God begins to distance himself from us, there are consequences in our lives. When God decides to leave us alone, to to take our final answer, He will see to it for all of eternity that we don't have him in our lives. But it's not as clinically dry as all that. The writer said that if we choose that, 
if we so displeased the God who desperately longs to have a loving friendship with us, that one day he will pour out judgment against us in anger. And when God lets her rip, Could have skipped that part, Cliff. Mm, no. John or John the Baptist, whoever was writing at the end, also wanted us to know that God put everything in Jesus' hands. It, it's in there. He put everything in his hands. The interesting thing about the word everything is that it means all of the things. Everything. The success of the Father's deeply desired mission to save the world from itself. God the Father decided he wouldn't make it happen. He'd put the success of it in Jesus' hands. It would succeed or fail based on what Jesus did, communicating the message of the Father's love so that everybody could understand it. God decided that he wouldn't force the issue. He just put it in Jesus' hands. Jesus would get the job done or not. It would be done convincingly and thereby save people from the destruction that their own sin brings upon them or the message would get distorted into mere religion or maybe the message would get lost. But God the Father said, I'm putting it in Jesus' hands. Revealing God to a very God-suspicious human race. Revealing him as loving and kind and that he really does long for us to be reconciled to him? Getting that message across or, or, or leaving in place the distorted view that God's mad and difficult to deal with and kind of an egomaniac. He was gonna, he was gonna put the success of that first message in Jesus' hands. So that gives Jesus functionally the place of God in this world. It gives Jesus the place of ultimate authority. It gives him the place of ultimate power. A member of the Trinity, truly divine, the divine (coughs) Son of God, invested with all the power and all the authority of God. That's who Jesus is. John or John the Baptist wanted to make sure that we knew it. Does it really matter who said these things? This last paragraph, does it really matter that we, uh, do we, do we have to figure out whether it was John the Baptist or whether it was the old man, John, the guy who in his other books just kept writing about love and love and love and, and loving and more love? Was it the firebrand prophet talking about doomsday? Or was it a kind-hearted old man who said, believe, or else God's going to leave you alone? I I don't know that it really matters. I hope it doesn't because I can't figure it out. Either voice from antiquity, the the Holy Spirit-filled, fire-breathing prophet who had literally watched the Spirit of God equip Jesus to do the mission? Or the wise old disciple John, lovingly but firmly, 
whoever it was. They bring us to the place of decision. Maybe it was, believe in Jesus or else. Or maybe it was, believe in Jesus. Follow him. Seriously partner with him to deal with your sinful heart and actions. Or or there's nothing left for God to do but to oppose you. Maybe for you today, it makes a difference. Maybe, maybe you're so sick and tired of your sin and the damage that it's doing to your person and to the people around you that you're a little bit fragile this morning. And maybe what you need is a gentle, loving, fatherly kind of voice that nudges you in the direction of faith in Jesus, not pushing too hard, but also helping you to understand it's time to make the decision because there is a threat of judgment. Or maybe, maybe you're just in a place where you need the football coach approach. John the Baptist, two inches off the end of your nose, barking and spitting and nearly foaming at the mouth with, with all the volume that he can generate to try to get your attention. And it's not for me to decide I guess it isn't really for you to decide either, but the God who knows you, however it is that you heard the message this morning, know that it came from him. Why? Because he wants you to get the message. That he offers a relationship and transformation in place of judgment. But if you need to to hear the message, however it is that you need to hear this message this morning, know that the God who knows what you need is speaking to you today in a way that you can understand, and the person next to you may need him to work very differently in their lives. How does he do it? Through the voice of his Holy Spirit, another major character in this story of the life of Jesus spirit who speaks to your heart and mind in ways that you can understand. John's Jesus is God. Over the next few weeks, we will read together about the many proofs that Jesus offered that he was God. We're going to learn about his radical and radically transforming teachings. And, and all these things are going to lead us to a single verse near the end of the book where John writes... These are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. It's from John chapter 20, verse 31. If today you sense the voice of his Holy Spirit leading you toward faith and you're ready to make that decision, do not delay. In a moment, we will pray, and you can have that conversation with God that begins that relationship that will transform your life. Know that the relationship includes submitting truth and advertising. But maybe today, you're still searching and seeking and learning, and if that's so, good. 
I want to encourage you to hang with us and to come back and next week and we'll take another fresh look at Jesus and, and maybe next week will be the week that God the Holy Spirit says, that's enough, isn't it, for you to believe? But maybe next week we'll just bring you closer to the place where you can make a decision to believe in him. But for those who are ready to do it today, let's do it. Stand with me, please, all of you, and bow your heads, close your eyes. God, when I get to this point in the sermon each week, since it all ultimately leads to the same place, faith in you, maybe I should have a spiel by now. Maybe I should have a formula or a liturgy that is just the right way to say it, but I always come to this place each week Trusting that however I phrase it up here, your Holy Spirit is doing the real work in speaking to the hearts of the people who are listening. When I preach a message, believe in Jesus. Some are saying, I already do. And it's, it's writing the story of my life, this faith I have in Jesus. Others are saying, I don't know if I can. I don't know if I can believe that he's, I mean, God, man, God. The hearts aren't rebelling against it, but they're just not there yet. Lord, Holy Spirit, do your work. Some have been teetering on the precipice of faith for some time, and today they're just saying, you know what, I've heard enough. Or I've waited long enough. And today I've considered the consequences. I, don't, I already feel separate from God. I don't, I don't want this for all of eternity. So if believing is what it takes, then today I place my faith in Jesus Christ. He's, he's the God. He's going to be my God. I'm going to submit myself to him in the here and now. He gets to be the God of me. If you, um, if you found yourself in that place today, ready to make the decision, ready to, to wrap up the investigation, ready to submit to God, would you just slip your hand in the air? It's a big moment. It's a, it's a change in your life. Good. I see you back there. Yeah. Yeah. Lord, I'm asking you to now do the follow-up work because it's big. These folks that have reached your direction in faith, saying, I want to believe, now they need you to come and, and, and be real. They need you to come and, and, and give the life that John said you'd give. They need the assurance that they'll be spared from judgment. If that, if that fear has been plaguing them, the fear needs to just dissipate. In its place, there needs to come a peace. Holy Spirit, do your work today. And for all of us, whether we're trying to continue to walk in faith or still searching for faith, we ask for the help of your Holy Spirit. 
Jesus, I just want to address you for a moment. I acknowledge that you are the son of the living God. You're really God. You always have been. I place my trust in you. You get to be my God. And I will be the one who is submitted to you. That submission puts me in the place where I should probably ask if there's anything that you want to say to me today. If there's anything in my life that needs to change, if I've had some (coughs) wrong-headed notion that I've continued to hang on to in stubbornness, if you get to be the God, then I'm the one who must submit, and I do it now. Speak to us. Speak to me, Lord. I listen for your voice.